Welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you are a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I'm Russell Stratton. And I'm Ken Cameron. And in this episode, I need to effing talk to Tyler Chisholm of Clear Motive Marketing. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Russell. Great to be here, guys. So I'm going to do a quick introduction and give our listeners a little bit of an introduction and background on Tyler. But then, Tyler, I'm going to invite you to fill in those gaps, okay? Because there's quite a lot of diverse and eclectic background that you've got. I'm going to just let our listeners know that in the spirit of transparency, that Clear Motive and Tyler was one of my early clients when I first moved out of the world of theater and into the world of business. And it was a, it was a great having you as one of my early clients because I really learned a lot from you and watching you work and watching how you manage your marketing company. And so in that spirit, let me back up. Let me just tell our listeners that you were born in Quebec, but moved to Calgary to pursue a career in aviation. And yet you didn't actually ever work in the aviation industry. Instead, you worked in the fitness industry, developed your own fitness regime and your own fitness products, and developed from that a love of marketing so that when you sold that company, then you teamed up with your colleague, Chad Croker, and you started Clear Motive Marketing. And in the middle of all of that, there was a ton of other things that this is where I'm going to invite you to fill in those gaps. Tyler, give us the quick elevator pitch about yourself, your business. Well, how many floors? How, how many, myself and the business? That's a lot of floors in the elevator. I will touch on, you know, about 10 years ago, we've just, it's just been 10 years since we have been the agency of record for Honda Canada, which is a win that put us on the map as an agency. We were a small shop in Calgary, quote unquote, had no business and I say that very respectfully, winning that client, but we did. And Ken, you helped us with that win. And we're actually going into our 10th year as being able to retain and the honor of working with a client like that. And when you talk about one of your first clients, you also had a very significant impact on that pitch. If you remember back in the time in the room, practicing through doing that and the impact that it had on us as a business. So I'll give you the quick elevator pitch on, on Clear Motive. Well, we're a traditional agency business that the last about 12 years has given us the permission and the ability to do what we're doing now. So we have two lines and two divisions in our business. We have a very traditional agency approach, which is strategy-led, get to know your business and understand very tactically which are the best elements to pull off the incredibly complex layers and layers of shelves of marketing to give you results that are going to work for your business. That's what we've done for about 12 years. Always strategy-led, always eventually coming right down to, will this help you drive sales for your business? Through COVID, we have developed a second division, which focuses on industrial marketing. So we work with mid-sized industrial companies to help them compete in a digital world where fundamentally, unfortunately, big is eating small by simplifying the complex to deliver new quality leads for them faster. I'll be short, guys. We took our own advice. <laughs> we specialized, we productized, and we developed a really clear output to solve a problem that we saw really take hold during COVID, but was already on its way for a lot of those mid-sized industrial companies that struggled to put marketing into play. We took what we've learned over the last 12 years, developed that into a whole area of business while still supporting our core clients, some of them which we've had for over 10 years now. That's fascinating. And I really like the way that you've described that this was a change that was already on its way. And one of the workshops that we did with you and your tech group is a workshop that Russell and I co-created called The Future is Coming. And one of the key phrases that we put right at the beginning of that workshop is that the future is already here. Hmm. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And that's a lovely quote from the Canadian science fiction writer, William Gibson, who coined the term cyberspace. And so I really like the way that you were able to see something that was already about to happen and capitalize on it so that you were right on the cutting edge of, of that transformation. 
It was that moment where we stepped back and said, wow, okay, like there's challenges, there's changes. What have we done that we've really been successful at? What do we really love doing? And which group of individuals is now becoming aware of a problem we already believe they had more than ever? And I'll be honest, I don't want to use how long can you go without saying the word COVID, but without the pandemic, I don't think it would have been brought as top of mind and it would have, the can would have been kicked down the road for longer. The can was already on the field though. Like let's, let's be clear. So for us, it wasn't the, Hey, let's make up something we've never done before to solve a problem we don't understand. It was all of a sudden the problem was as top of mind for our customers as it had been for us in the years prior. So it was a really, again, I choose to find the silver lining in every opportunity and COVID that's the silver lining that we found. And we also got our butt kicked. So things changed and business slowed down. And so it forced us to take that time to do the thing that we've been talking about for years. So our future kind of showed up for us too. I was interested when uh, Ken was giving your your bio uh, that you you sort of hadn't started out with the uh, with marketing in mind. You know, you were, aviation was something that you originally intended to pursue when you arrived here from uh, the eastern side of Canada and then uh, into fitness and then suddenly into marketing. So what was it about marketing that uh, got you interested in working in that area? The power of brand, the power of story, the power of connection, the ability to create something that that literally was from nothing and make it mean something for a whole group of people in a way that creates loyalty, creates purchasing, so many aspects. I read The 22 Immutable Laws of Branding by Al Rice. I don't even remember when I read it, early, early 2000s. And all of a sudden, and I was starting my own business at the time, so heal thyself first. I was like, whoa, wow, okay, I'm really passionate about this fitness thing and helping people. But if I can't tell my story and I can't get it out there, I'm not going to get any customers. We've got to relay this. And Looking at all the like, because you know, you, you start a business, you you get a little bit of an accounting hat, then you get a little bit of an HR hat, and then you get a bit of a legal hat. But when I picked up the marketing hat, I was like, oh, I like this hat. I like how this hat feels. So I got my marketing education in the trenches of if we don't make this work, maybe we won't get to stay in business. So it was very much a trial by fire. It's also trial by fire. I met my current business partner. Never, never refuse the offer of a cigar from a stranger at a backyard fire pit party in Calgary when you've just moved here. That's the lesson, kids. You don't want to maybe, you don't really want to shake back to your parents. But I sat at a fire pit party, which was a new thing for me moving to Alberta beside my current business partner. And he goes, hey, do you want to smoke a cigar? And I was like, well, not really, but you seem like a cool guy. So I'm, I don't know anyone else here. So let's do it. Jeez, what are you doing? I'm building a business. Well, hey, I do logos. We should do logos together. So trial by fire was also the start of my relationship. So I was Chad's client out of the start. And we worked together to really build that brand. I fell in love with marketing. We became eventually business brothers, as I like to affectionately refer to it as. And that was that transition of learning it and going, wow, I really want to do this for other businesses. Chad being incredibly passionate and very different than I was, but together we just work. So that was a little bit of a roundabout how the partnership came to be, but also how we actually got our start working together, solving a business's challenge around using marketing. And that's interesting because you mentioned the talk about a story and people telling their story as part of their brand. And uh, we've had two or three times now in in recent podcasts where our guests have talked about the power of story in slightly different settings. Some talking around you know, in the financial management industry, people talked about it in terms of their leadership role, but it all came down to the point of being able to tell a story that was compelling and and get people to buy into it and they got their attention and their interest. So it was uh, interesting. There seems to be a common thread, um, isn't there, Ken, in the last uh, three or four interviews that have all had storytelling as something coming through, um, which is quite interesting to see. 
Our last guest even talked about storytelling in terms of lesson points in the construction industry, which is the last place you would expect story to be playing a major role. But for him, it was a key part of his leadership style. Well, Ken, knowing you from your before life as a professional storyteller, and I'm sure you still are, that ability to connect and for that ability and what I love, like where brand and story come together for me is that intersection of people being able to reflect and go, oh, I see myself in that, or I see a dilemma, or I see something I've overcome. And I don't think it's just, you know, story, obviously, it's easy to kind of throw out the word story. But around brand, it's where I see my reflection. And sometimes that reflection is aspirational. In the fitness business, it was very much so. Often in business, no one hires a marketing company to do what they've already done. They want to do what they get to do next. And so it really tied in. And that excitement about whether it's helping, going by, I always joke, meeting with a new client and meeting with a new client in the fitness business, they both want a different future. They're both willing to put in the work. They both have a vision of where they want to get to. They both have a history of, well, geez, have you been here before? What's it like? I want to be on the cover of a fitness magazine or I want to sell $10 million of product, but I'm only willing to work out once a week or maybe spend this small amount on advertising. There are certain points where reality also sets in. There's been a lot of similarities over over the years, almost so much that I think it becomes silly if I keep doing a comparison, but everybody's looking to buy into a better future. They're looking to hope for better. And those two things really bridge the gap between those two industries. Yes, and there's also something about past story that I've watched you do. And I'm thinking here of the pitch to Honda Canada that you did a long time ago. And what really struck me when we were working on that together was that you started the pitch with a photograph of yourself on your first Honda motorbike and a picture of Chad on his first Honda motorbike with a story from each of you about how you got those vehicles and how you became Honda customers first. And I wasn't in the room when you made the final pitch, but it's the story I've told myself over the past decade was that that was those photos and that story hooked your listeners from the very beginning. There was no question in that case. And, and a company that is as passionate and product-led as, as they are, you know, I don't know how much of a make or break it was, but there was no illusion in their mind that we were absolutely enthusiasts. And if you remember Chad's photo, it was actually Chad as, at two years old with a scarf tied to the sissy bar on the back of his dad's motorcycle. So like safety of the late 70s, early 80s, he was literally tied on with a scarf and his dad took him for a ride around the block. So his first story was, you know, literally before he could walk, he was on the back of a motorcycle. And you're right, we I think those are the second and third slides into the presentation. So just so you know, we're here not because it's a good opportunity. We're here because we actually love what this is about. And I can't, I, I couldn't believe for a second that that didn't have a positive impact. And, you know, it, it must have, because the, the other thing you've been um, humbly not describing was that there were three other advertising firms in competition, and they were all from downtown Toronto. And you were the only one that wasn't from Toronto, and you were the one that won the account. So it's even more of a testament to the fact that your passion led that conversation and led that account. We were by far, I think the next smallest agency to us was uh, 100 people, and we were 10. So like when I say we have no business doing it, we were clearly passionate and we had the skills, but in the world of business to business, we were far outside of our sandbox. Now, you mentioned earlier on, uh, obviously, the C word or the COVID word, which unfortunately we can't seem to escape from um, speaking to anybody over the last couple of years. I apologize. I apologize. No, no, that, that, that's, that's okay. It was going to come up at some point. So, so there we are. <laughs> and that was one of the challenges you were finding in, in the industry. But have you found any uh, the biggest unexpected challenge? Because that was something you said you sort of saw was coming down the track when you were talking about uh, um, in the industries you were working with. But anything that's come out of like left field that you found over the last few years that you weren't expecting and suddenly took you by surprise? 
Oh, I, I feel cliche to say like it went longer. It's longer than we thought. It was more severe than we thought. The impact that I think the changes to our business world and the, you know, people saying, oh, I can't wait for it to go back to normal and just the ridiculousness of that, of that comment <laughs> in terms of, well, you never go back. So we're going forward. And anything that was overly surprising, I think after the first three to four months of the team going, well, are we going to be back next month? And really settling into like, well, this could be a year, this could be two years. I think that was the biggest surprise that once we made that decision or sorry, once we admitted to it or embraced it or stopped just resenting it every minute of every day, we were able to make better decisions as a business. We've gone to a remote, a full remote model. We have subleased both of our offices in Calgary and Toronto. We've changed our recruiting. We're rewriting all of our employee policies to accommodate remote work. We have one of our team members is in Mexico for a couple of weeks. He's not on vacation. He's just working in Mexico. So at the end of the day, he gets to go out to the beach versus his house in downtown Toronto. So that was so unexpected. If you would ask me two and a half years ago, was that possible? Would it work? My short answer, my easy answer would have been no. But that entrepreneur in me would have been like, oh, wow, what would it be like if it could? And so I think the surprise for me was how much we were able to change our business and it to be an absolute positive. I will say with confidence that COVID was the best thing that happened to us. It's interesting when you were talking about that, you know, moving to that full remote model, because I've had a number of conversations with clients, other people around in industry that some were looking to, you know, see how we can get people to return back to the office to the way that we used to. Now we can stop worrying about remote working and now we come back to people working in in the office. And one of the things I asked them, well, why? Why are you so keen for people to come back? And it was often said, well, it was that sort of fear of loss of control. If you allow people to be working remotely, then you can't see what they're doing. And there's that sort of fear that, you know, they're not doing what it is you want them to do. Now, that's not something I subscribe to because it seems... You know, the, the, some of the principles are still going to be the same. I'd be interested in your take. Have you covered that off in your business in sort of allaying those fears that might sit there that people are going to go, like your colleague, goes to Mexico and may just be in, on the beach the whole time and doesn't do any work at all? So is there something you perhaps you could share with our listeners, something practical that you've done that's helped in your sort of systems or processes there? I think from our perspective, we have a lot of short-term accountability built into deliverables and milestones of the work that we do. So for someone to then have X and Y and Z all do on Thursday, which was communicated well in advance of going to Mexico, do I really care if he got those done in six hours during the uh, uh, you know a nine to five type of day or if he did it at 10 o'clock at night? The accountability cycle is very tight in our world. So I think that lends to it. We are knowledge workers, but we're also milestone driven and project driven. And we also had a suite of tools that were in place well before COVID that we're getting better at using every day, which is Slack, which is Asana, which is Box, where there is consistent and constant communication. And our world is also very touch base, like 15-minute touch base, 15-minute touch base there. So there's a lot of accountability and a lot of transparency. If someone, quote-unquote, disappears for a couple days, it's known and felt pretty quickly. So I think that that's also part of our model and part of our values, you know, be accountable, be helpful, speak up. They all are observable behaviors, and that was very much deliberate. So you're either doing them or you're not, and your team's going to see it right away. So I think that that's been helpful for us, and it's still been learning. There's no question. People felt isolated, People felt like they weren't part of something. We didn't have the great resignation, but it was substantial. So a lot of the people we've hired on since then are remote first self-identified. They're not, I got forced to work from home and my kitchen table sucks. I don't like this. So I'd say we're also in a second wave where a lot of the people we have hired recently have come on with a remote first mindset. And a couple of them are like, we're working for you. 
because you're not going to make us come in. So therefore, we're okay to be held accountable. We're okay to over, I don't also over communicate. I don't know if there's any such thing as over communicating these days in the world of work. So those are a lot of things that I think have netted out. And I'm going to be very asterisk on this. It's still a big experiment. We're in a nice phase where it's really working now. We're about to go through some growth. So we're going to see some challenges as new people come on. But that's what's helped us meter some of those concerns. And I'll just like the illusion of control is really what we should be laughing about here is the word control. <laughs> so I was going to say, I was interested in the, the try you said the, there is a number of like some structures that are sitting there in the background. So you've got you know, use of the technology, something like Slack, for example, that you're able to use to help people you know, communicate with their work. I, I hesitate to use the word track people's work, mm-hmm. but you're, you're, the workflow is able to be seen at various points and people can intervene and be involved. And having that as a basis means it's not as important necessarily to have everybody sitting in the same office opposite each other because you can track this and, and, and monitor and, and interact and exchange information using that technology, which enables you to have more of a, a remote working way of doing things. And I wonder sometimes when people, if they're thinking that it's the remote working is without any of the support function, they're basically just having the same functions as they had before, but now they just don't have people working with them. And I think one of that drives some of the the fear of being, oh, that illusion of control or lack of control. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's so asking the right question and it's not control or it's not, you know, like you said, tracking people. It's accountability through the reality of this, short sprints and let's meet tomorrow and I'll get this done and you get that done. If you send it to me, I can do my piece. So there's a level of interpersonal accountability that isn't tracking. And I think that's very like, be accountable to your coworker, be it to your team. And ultimately we're all accountable to the client. We are a service business first. We just chose to do marketing. And I think that's something that's critical to remember, but we have that same relationship with each other. Or when we do, things go much better. (laughs) I will also say. And, you know, you've talked about what's changed and what's transformed in your company, the growth you're going through the past two years, but what do you see happening in the industry as a whole in the, in the coming decade or even the next five years? That's a tough one because I think the, the easy answer I would say right now is the level of data that we have access to on each individual will slowly drive more and more decision as the algorithms get more intelligent and our ability to process it and turn it into ways of communicating But we're also moving into a world where Web 2 is transitioning to Web 3, where we have more decentralized, more anonymity. We have a resistance to giving up our privacy, even though we're still willingly doing it. Our disillusionment or disenfranchisement with the news and with where we're getting our information from is we're becoming more and more skeptical and more division is happening in our society. So I kind of, I want to say one because it's the trend we're on. And when you look at the power of AI and machine learning and how much data we can process and how much data we've collected... But yet in some ways, I think we're starting to pull back as individuals on like, ooh, ooh, this is not, this is being used against me. This is being, I'm being manipulated. You know, we all love to buy, but we hate to be sold to. And I think the world of digital and marketing specifically is, is running a very significant tightrope right now. And I haven't had a conversation with my like any like 13 or 18 year olds right now, because almost for us guys, it doesn't matter. We're not the real trend. People are like, oh, metaverse, it'll never matter. I'm like, no, it won't matter to you. You're 45. But to my 15-year-old nephew, hmm, might matter to him. That's a different conversation. So I think there's a lot of jumbled up things in there. I think we're going to get access to more data. We're going to have bigger, more powerful engines to process it. But we're also moving to a place where as individuals, we're starting to become aware of what we gave up when we gave our privacy. So there's somewhere going to be an intersection. And I would love to see it come back into balance. Even though as a society, we do balance very poorly. We do extremes seemingly much better. (laughs) 
So I don't think if I answered your question, except I threw a bunch of buzz terms together to go, really, I don't know where it's headed, but it's a balance between privacy and our capacity to process data is going to influence things in ways I don't think we've thought of yet. How refreshing to have a leader say that all he's done is string together a bunch of buzzwords. Really refreshing vulnerability there, Tyler. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Guilty. Like, I get it. It's a bit of buzzword. I know what they all mean because I've done my reading, but I'm like, do I really know what it means in the future? I don't know yet. <laughs> Well the, well, the thing is, li- li- people listening to this are going, the guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. This is great. So uh, we won't spoil that illusion. I'm sure it's, you, you do know anyway. But I'd just like to change tack here slightly, Tom. Sure. Um, talk a little bit about your career. And we talk a lot on our podcast with people about who are, who are the mentors or coaches that people have had that have helped them get to where they are now. So what about for you? Is there a mentor or a coach that you would say has helped you get to where you are in your career? I looked at this question and you guys did send this to me in advance. You gave me some chance to ponder it. And I can't say, I can't call it one individual. It is a series of individuals. I'm a huge proponent of coaching. I'm a huge proponent. Ken and I met through a different situation, but we got to work together because he was coaching us. Bringing in external viewpoints to like to see your, you can't see the label when you're inside the bottle and whether that's your business or whether that's yourself. So I've been in an executive leadership group since 2010 And uh, I think nine out of the last 12 years I've been in in that group. And that is a variety of anywhere from 12 to 15 individuals plus a chair. They have had such an incredible impact in my life. Each individual in a sliver of a way of being able to share an issue, being able to have held accountable, to have blind spots pointed out to you in a room where, you know, carefrontation is one of the models where you're specifically in that room because these are people that care about you, but they're not inside your friend circle. They're not scared to say, "Hmm, hey, Tyler, you know that thing you said you're going to do six months later and you're still not doing it. Like, What's, what's going on there? That kind of accountability and that kind of mentorship coaching, they all kind of boil together, has been such a huge impact for me. So for anyone listening, you know, if there's one single person you can think of, that's great. It needs to be a pit crew. The guy who changes the tires isn't the guy who puts the fuel in the car. You've got to have those different people around you for different perspectives. And being self-aware, being vulnerable, realizing you don't have all the answers and being willing to ask a group of people can be incredibly humbling and feel really... Yeah, not not great, but you always feel better afterwards. So I would say, you know, again, the group approach and putting yourself out there with people you trust in all kinds of different areas of your life, that's where I would kind of give the credit and certainly what I would recommend for anyone listening. And I've been to that group of yours, that leadership accountability circle group, and not all of them are senior to you. We have this notion with the coach or mentor term that it must be somebody who's older than us. Hmm. But I've observed in that group that a lot of them were the similar age or peers to you. So do you draw um, equally from people who are senior or the same age as you or even people who are younger than you? That's a really good question because when I started in that group, I was the youngest. The smallest business and I was the youngest. And every I had imposter syndrome for the first six months so bad I, I, I could hardly keep myself in the room. Every conversation was outside my pay grade was the joke I used to make. And over time, now I've become one of the older guys in the room. There's a couple guys I think of right now in the group that are probably in their 30s. And I'm just like, holy shit, like that is, wow. Like I want to spend more time with this person because of what they know. And it becomes less about age and more about area of expertise. And you always meet old souls and young souls. So I think it plays a lot about who you connect with. But taking advice from someone 35 years old who's been trained in high finance and done M&A work all over the world, you're 35-year-old against my 48-year-old, I couldn't care less. I want to know what, what's inside your head of experiences. So for me, I, I base it all on the individual. I, don't, I, don't, I very seldom base it on age. 
Awesome. And you were talking, and that's an interesting one because I've heard that before. Sometimes it's not just about age, it's the experiences and it's the various experiences and experts that people have that really brings the value. So with, with that in mind, if you were thinking about your work as a leader, what's the most important personality trait or strength that you feel somebody should have to make them a successful leader? Self-awareness and emotional intelligence. And by emotional intelligence, I mean the ability to be intelligent with your emotions. Those two things combined, which are maybe one and the same, but if I look at my earlier self to my current self, the level of self-awareness definitely lacking when I was younger, or certainly the ability, the time between the event of when you acted unself-aware to the point you did actually go, hmm, and became aware of it. Over time, those two timelines have gotten closer and closer together to the point you can almost get it in real time. I'll say something and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second, I apologize. That was a reaction. That was not appropriate. I, I will retract that in the meeting. And the closer those two get together, for me, has been a very successful uh, strategy. And the ability to be intelligent about my emotions and understand when they're kind of, when they're bullying me or pushing me around has been a huge factor for me. And the leaders I know that are the most successful are often people I would put in that category. That's great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for that. Now we're just at our intermission break. So this is where we do our quick fire questions. And Tyler pulled back the curtain a little bit for our viewers and explained for probably for the first time for our regular viewers that we sent the questions in advance. So now you guys know how it works behind the scenes. So Tyler's got some responses to these questions. So well, this allows us to fire them at you quickly and you can pretend as if you're just drawing (laughs) them uh, off the top of your head, Tyler. So intermission break, quick fire questions. What is your favorite epic movie? I had two options for this one, Mindhunter and 100 Foot Wave. Okay. And what is your favorite effing TV show? And your favorite book? The Craft of the Warrior by Robert Spencer was the most impactful for me in terms of changing my life. Favorite book that I've read that came to mind, I like, just love to read it, was The Three-Day Road. And your favorite hobby? Uh, anything that allows me to push my performance and compete against myself. Motorcycle racing, snowboarding, anything fitness and health related, but there has to be a degree of if I try harder, I can get better and I can tell that I'm getting better. That's the critical factor for a hobby for me. And your favorite sports team or sports figure? No favorite sports teams. Don't really watch sports, play any sport. I'll watch it if it's on. Don't really care about sports teams. Sports figure, Terry Fox. And I'd never thought of that that way before. But when when I thought of the question, I went, absolutely. For all the reasons that sport is the least of the reasons. (laughs) Hmm, interesting, interesting. And yet for somebody who's so physical and who's got a background in fitness, you're not a, a sports follower. For you, it's all about the personal development and the competing against yourself. Yeah, if it's a sport that I do, I can always watch it and appreciate like, wow, I know what my level is. And then like to watch professional MotoGP racing on motor, and I've been on some of those racetracks to see what they can do versus what I can do. I'll watch it just out of respect of like next level of uh, skill set. But be, beyond that, no, I'm much more of a, of a doer than a, than a, than a sideline observer. And, you know, I see that in you. I remember there was one occasion when we had a double date at our cabin with our respective uh, wives and we went canoeing on the lake. And I remember my wife and I were like gently paddling and you were so bored. And I remember you saying afterwards, you're like, I wanted to canoe. I wanted to go. I wanted to get to the other side of the lake. And here we were just (laughs) gently like heading towards the loon so as not to scare the loon. (laughs) And it was just kind of not Tyler's weekend, uh, I think. We were just moving at different speeds. Yes, it was. in, In hindsight, I could have handled it slightly differently, but you were absolutely correct sir in that story there's the self-awareness piece you just talked about a hundred percent yes i'm like hmm 
Back to an earlier question. <laughs> I think the next day, it was a, m- a much more successful day because we cut down like three giant standing dead trees in a row so that I could have some firewood for the winter. So That was one of my favorite memories of hanging out with you, Ken, was, is, is doing some, some cutting down some trees together. It was fun. Absolutely. And what we need to let the viewers know is we both grew up on a farm and we have uh, had different experiences, both in uh, Eastern Canada, by the way, and we both have experiences with uh, like cutting down the trees and using those trees to burn the wood to, to cook the maple syrup. And uh, I think it's amazing we both have that background. <laughs> but let's get in back to business because you're a big reader and you read a lot about business and that knowledge shows because a couple of questions ago, you just dropped a string of buzzwords in a single sentence. So out of those buzzwords, which of those words or phrases do you think are the most overused phrases in business and why? Oh, interesting. In business, I would say team, collaboration, high performance. And of course, everyone's favorite buzzword for the last two years, pivot, of course. And I think pivot is accurate. I just think it's overused because it's true so often for so many people. I think it could be synonyms with survival. But like the concept of high-performance teams, I think gets talked about a lot. It gets sold a lot as an idea. Russell, some of your intro, maybe you're nodding, go, yeah. Even the word team gets thrown around. Like just because you put a bunch of people together, you can't call them a team. You can call them a group of people. And high-performance, what does high-performance really truly look like? I'll tell you a quick story, if I may. Uh, A few years ago, I had the absolute honor to go flying with our Canadian aerial performance team, the Snowbirds. And I met them through some mutual friends and they said, you know what? You know what we're terrible at is marketing. But would you like to go for a plane ride and trade us some marketing for for some... some, I'm like, absolutely. So I love the ride in the plane. And that was phenomenal. We'll park that. But I got to sit in the room and see them all sit around in a circle. They all sat in the chair that was associated with their number of their planes. They all sat in the same seats every time. And while I'm there, the chief warrant officer is, is I'm watching their briefing and I'm going around the room and they're all saying what they're going to do in today's briefing. And he goes, what you're not seeing is what happened in the debrief after the last flight, where every single one of them will go around the room and say what they did wrong and what they will be working on next flight. And he goes, that was implemented in the 80s because they had two pilots that actually sat beside each other and flew beside each other. And they would never take responsibility. They would always blame the other guy. And they um, unfortunately died in a midair collision. And at that point, they said, we need to change how we actually work as a team because the consequences are too severe and we're not actually a team. And they said, when what happens is you go around the room and everybody knows what everybody did because you can literally count the screws on the guy's wing who's right beside you. And if you go over by a certain like, you know, guy number six or girl number six, and they don't say what they did wrong and everybody knows that they did something in error, they will ask everyone else to leave the room and they will stay in that room until they've hashed out what it's going to take to be better next time and everyone to be accountable for what they did. At that moment in my life, that's when I knew what a version of high performance looked like. And it gets thrown around in business way too loosely and comes nowhere close to what I saw in the room that day. (laughs) So sorry, that was a very long answer, but I thought the story would be relevant. <laughs> and, and that's a very vital story because all of those buzzwords that you hate so much are the buzzwords that are on the top of my masthead on my website. So I'm clearly going to need to come back to your company and redo my entire website and branding. So thanks for that. <laughs> Way to drum up the business there. Um, Russell, while, while I hang my head in shame, why don't you take the next question? Wow, that was not the intent, just to be super clear. <laughs> Talking about you, there was a good example there from there looking at that group about what goes well from what doesn't go well for them and how they take personal accountability. Uh, you've talked about personal accountability earlier. So put you on the spot a little bit. What's the biggest effing career failure you've had? But perhaps more importantly, what did you learn from that experience? 
selling a business and having the deal fall apart essentially at the 11th hour, almost after the fact. And what I learned very clearly is you can never know too much of the details. They matter. And no matter how many people you have around you that you believe are smarter than you on the thing, that know more about the thing, there's a level of accountability that you still have to understand it. It's kind of like the old joke, don't invest in things you don't understand. When you're doing a deal like that or doing anything of any magnitude, you may not be the expert, but you've got to be able to sit back and go, okay, at the level that Matt, I understand what's happening and what the consequences of going left or going right might be. I thought I did, famous last words. At the time, I didn't, and the consequences were severe. From the perspective of there was financial impact, there was personal impact, it was absolutely probably the biggest failure I had had in my life at that point. So it was humbling. I would argue that if it didn't happen, I wouldn't maybe have the arguably the success I have today because the lessons that I learned there, that was my MBA, no, no, no question about it. But I definitely learned to take the details more seriously. And probably, you know, back to my earlier comment about mentors, like I had a couple people around me at the time. I go through something like now, I have 15 people around me. I can touch on like, what about this? What's my blind spot? What am I not seeing? So it really taught me to kind of strengthen the ranks when it comes to expertise but knowing that the buck still stops with me when it comes to it. No one else can make it or break it. It's still up to me. So that was a rough one for sure, but I'm glad you asked it. And I like hearing you say that it was that experience that made you the entrepreneur you are today. Because on these podcasts, well, and I talk a lot about failing forward. And it's actually a phrase I remember hearing about in an interview with Ray Danilo, who runs uh, Brookfield Investments, one of the largest, most successful investment firms in the world. Hmm. And one of the reasons he's so successful is because he failed twice in an investment firm and he learned never to do that again. And one of the things in his organization is just that same degree of high-performance accountability that you described in the Snowbirds, hmm. in the sense that all of his associates are required to call one another on the carpet all the time. And that kind of radical candor is something that he makes sure is a foundation of his company. So with that in mind, what's the foundation of your company? And if you could distill it into a sentence or a motto, what is kind of one motto that you use as a foundation in your approach to business or in your work at Clear Motive? Say it's one of the mottos that I'd certainly take on my own life. And it's something that resonates. Do what it takes to understand what will provide value. And if you want to really boil it down to what we do with our clients every day, it's conceptual until the second it's not. And that's the challenge with marketing. It's an idea, it's a thing. It's a, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, that's not what I wanted. And that ability to understand, am I bringing value every step of the way? If I move something down the track as a project manager, does do I add value? If I'm a designer and I'm doing four, I think we had a project the other day where there was 480 assets required to get this thing in market, all based on the same creative that designer, that production designer could really fall into the trap of just, oh, I'm just going to pump these out. I got to get it done versus like, oh, wait a second. When I put that into this format, I don't know if it really works anymore. I don't know if the spacing is right. I think it doesn't look good. So there's an opportunity to add value. And I think that's something we work on permeating through organization. Do we always hit it? No. Time, reality, budgets, clients, the, the moon cycle, the, the, the weather that day, and it all affects us as humans. But when we do think about that as what am I doing to add value to this thing I'm touching, seeing, or being involved with, we do better. And I think we aspire to it at all times. You know, going back to our sports analogy, I remember hearing, like this is going back 10 years ago when the Calgary Flames were making their run at the cup. I remember hearing that same phrase being given to the defenseman Dion Panouf. Every time he touched the puck, he took three skates forward before he passed it. Every single time he touched the puck, he moved it forward. And it sounds like that metaphor is kind of what you're talking about here. That's really, I had not heard that before. I really like it versus just passing it off. But they would, no matter what, 
I moved it forward. I moved it closer to the goal. Ah, I really like that one. I never heard that before. That's awesome. Well, you mentioned your um, executive accountability group and uh, you started as the youngest member and now you're uh, perhaps a more senior um We'll say middle. Let's say middle of the pack. Let's say middle. Middle, middle of the pack, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're yeah. an elder, Tyler. Let's face it. You're you, Welcome elderhood. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. I'm good. Age is, age is being kind to me, so I'm okay. But let's not get carried away. <laughs> you're, you're a future elder of the group. We'll, we'll, put it that, we'll put it that way. So if you were then going to ask you, Pat, we, we move forward a few more years in your career, and then you ask you to look back, what would you like to be effing remembered for? Adding value to any situation I'm in whether it's a group setting, whether it's a party, whether it's an adventure, whether it's sitting down with a client, whether it's having someone on the podcast, being able to chat with them and add a perspective either to that individual or to the audience that's listening. So anywhere that I can say that I brought value to the table, that makes me feel good. That I really identify with. And we're zeroing in on our very last question here, Tyler. We really appreciate the time you spent with us, and I'm sure our listeners do too. And as we look ahead, what are you currently working on that our listeners should effing care about? We always like to give our guests the opportunity to talk about what they're doing next so that our listeners can pay attention. So what should they be looking for coming out of Clear Motive or coming out of Tyler Chisholm? Two things I'm super excited about right now. It's like being in a 12-year business, but still being, but being able to act as a startup. So our industrial marketing system... I have not been this excited about something in our business, besides client work. I love client work, but when it comes to the, the grind of making your business better all the time, this product or this offering that we've been able to bring to market, we have six clients that are currently using it. We just rolled it out in Q4 last, uh, the end of Q3, the start of Q4. And we're in market with it now. So we're seeing the results. So not only I'm excited about providing it, I'm also seeing that it's driving the result that we have promised or the value that we have kind of presupposed to our customers to saying, we can help you get qualified leads to help you grow your business by embracing marketing and embracing digital. So if you're curious about that, check it out at Clear Motive. Reach out to me. I'd love to chat with you more about it. If you're an industrial company that's, I'll be honest, been frustrated with marketing and really frustrated because the old sales book isn't working like it used to because the world has changed underneath your feet. We've got something that really respects that process as well as your subject matter expertise, but let's put marketing in the middle of that. So that's really fun. And we're going to have some ability to have huge positive impact on, on, our, on a whole new customer base over the next couple of years. And I'm also spinning up a new sub-theme in my podcast right now that I'm really excited about. So Collisions YYC, Follow the Money, Investing with Purpose. I had a bunch of conversations last year with venture capitalists and with some of the leading kind of thinkers and influencers in our province around the gap between the amount of money that's currently coming into our startup ecosystem and the money that's needed. So just for a bookmark, 453 million came in. We need somewhere between three to 7 billion to actually move our startup ecosystem to where it needs to be to really truly change our economy. I said, huh, that feels like a lot of space to have a conversation in between 450 and let's just say 3 billion for fun. Let's pick the bottom number. So I'm spinning up an episode, right, a series of episodes right now where I'm talking to tech startups. I'm talking to the people that are investing in them, influencers, and putting in a layer of purpose. Because if you're a startup who doesn't have a product, who doesn't have a customer, you better have a pretty deep purpose if you want somebody to invest in you. So I want to get the perspective of how much purpose actually truly pays into driving dollars because we all know it feels good and it creates retention and it tells a great story, but how much is it actually moving the needle? And the more people I'm talking to, they're finding out it's moving the needle at as a dollar value a lot more than maybe could have easily been thought about without unpacking it. So that's going to market. We're launching our first one probably in about a month. And I'm currently meeting with a variety of different kind of thought leaders and startup entrepreneurs from all over Alberta and Western Canada here in the next couple of weeks. So really excited about both, both those things. 
Excellent. And Collisions YYC, it's a great podcast. I encourage all of our listeners to flip on over, listen to that podcast too, because you certainly won't be disappointed. But not until you finish listening to this podcast, and then you can go and listen to Tyler's. Um, but uh, seriously, Tyler, that, that's great. What we'll do is make sure in our show notes, we've got a link through to your podcast, but also to uh, your company as well. So if people have been interested in what they've heard you talk about in this episode, that they can reach out to you directly and have that conversation. That would be that would be great. So that wraps up this episode. We hope you, the listener, enjoyed it. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share the link with your friends and colleagues. And you can always reach out to us at the email address in the show notes. Goodbye for now, and we'll effing talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>